seated. I turn your attention now to page four. Part of our habit as a community uh, is acknowledging our children's presence here with us, uh, to, acknowledge, um, to acknowledge them, to honor them, uh, to acknowledge that Jesus said that his kingdom, that his very presence belongs to the least of these. So we acknowledge that uh, together and honor our children and the way that they help us tune in uh, to being present, to Jesus' presence. So kids, be ready for your part. Children of God, the Lord be with you as you worship. Amen. Amen. Let's pray as we continue. God, we thank you that you speak to us, not only from a distance and on high, but by becoming flesh among us, by speaking to us in the person of Jesus. So we acknowledge tonight that you are speaking to us in Jesus, and we want to be good listeners. We invite your spirit to illuminate those places in our lives where we most need to hear from you. We invite your spirit to soften our hearts so that we may not only be hearers of the word, but also doers. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of uh, what God's to a people in exile, speaking of what God's deliverance would look like one day, uh, casting vision um, for, the, for the reality of, of God's liberation and new life and, and even new exodus that, that God was going to bring to his people. Salvation. Uh, the way, part of the way that uh, the prophet Isaiah describes this, um, he says what the salvation is going to look like. He says that as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Uh, in, um, in the Anglican Church, we, uh, we follow the, the church calendar, and this is the season of Epiphany. And uh, the past couple weeks, we've been, we've been looking at Epiphany um, we said that epiphany is just a fancy word for revelation. Um, it's a fancy word for describing uh, what it's like when the light comes on and something is revealed or, or manifested or, or brought to light. And we said that, that Jesus actually, uh, the, the truth of, of uh, what we looked at through Advent and Christmas is that, that Jesus has come among us to be the epiphany of God, to be the revelation of God's saving purposes, to shine a light on who God is and who we are and how God is at work in the world. And so we want to be a people in Epiphany, as, God, as Jesus reveals God's saving purposes, we want to be a people who seek to behold Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. We want to seek to behold Jesus. To, see, to not just see uh, with normal eyes, but to see in a way where, where we get caught up 
into Jesus' life. To behold is to see in a way that we get caught up into Jesus' life, that, we, that our story, that our lives gets caught up into Jesus' story and into Jesus' life. And so we're continuing to look at that, to seek to behold Jesus, to see what we see about what Jesus reveals about who God is and how he is manifesting God's salvation among us. And then in turn, what that means for us about who we are and, and what it means to, to live out God's salvation. Christ the King, uh, we live in a world anxious that all the good wine has run out. Amen. We, we, thanks, Bill. <laughs> we live in a world anxious that all the good wine has run out or is about to run out. We live in a world of government shutdowns. We live in a world uh, that, that gets in an uproar over overpriced razor blade commercials. We live in a world uh, where dreams that we have had, uh, that we see them not working out like we wanted, uh, where, where beliefs that we had, we, don't ha- we, we can't hold them anymore. Uh, we live in a world full of, of disappointments and longings that aren't met. We live in a world uh, where uh, of frustrations, of, of trying to raise kids, of trying to make ends meet, of, of trying to get through the school day, of trying to get through the work day. We live in a world anxious that all the good wine has run out. And what I mean by that, what I mean by a world anxious that all the good wine has run out, I mean that we live in a world that operates under the sneaking suspicion that life is actually spent. Operating under the sneaking suspicion. Maybe it's not above ground, maybe it's all below surface, maybe it's kind of a subtext that life is actually spent. Forgive the sports analogy, but maybe this is kind of like showing, showing up for a Hogs game. It's like for a Hogs football game, we've shown up, but we already know what's going to happen. Like we know where this is going. We know that this is going to end in a defeat. But we're there, and we, we, you know, we'll cheer a little bit. The best we can hope for is like a nice field goal. Uh, we get excited about a good tackle here or there, maybe a good uh, catch and pass and whatever. You guys see how well I know the sports ball. Are you seeing what I'm saying? We live in a world anxious that all the good wine has run out. We live in a world with a sneaking suspicion that life is actually spent. And what that means is that, that if life is actually spent, that all that there is left to our lives, to our daily lives, is the will to power. And then, and then squeezing meaning out of the cheap substitutes for life that we have. Squeezing, trying to squeeze meaning out of what we have. And it's this world that's anxious that the good wine has run out or that it's about to run out. This world that shapes us into fear, into misery, into division, into desperation, and even depression. Have you felt this recently? A world anxious that all the good wine has run out. Recently, I was on 
uh, flying um, on a plane from, from here to Chicago. And uh, usually when I'm on the plane, um, my introvertedness uh, likes to stay in my own zone. And I am um, always feel like I fail as the pastor who like evangelizes the seatmate. Because um, I just really want to just have... Uh, two hours or whatever just to think and to be quiet. Um, but uh, I had a friendly seatmate uh, a couple weeks ago, and so we were chatting. And I, of course, had some um, religious paraphernalia, uh, I guess, on my person, like a book. And he was kind of like looking over at my book and like looking at chapter headings. And there was like a chapter heading that said something like, um, like the radical kingdom of God or something like that. And he was like, what's that about? And I hadn't even read it yet, and I'm like, well... <laughs> and so I'm trying, we spark up a spiritual conversation, and we're talking, and, and it's a great conversation. And he, he grew up Roman Catholic, but doesn't go to church anymore, and hasn't gone to church for a really long time, but, but was interested in, in what I was describing about this radical kingdom of God. And so I asked him about what, what his life is like, and um, whether or not uh, he has a community of Christians that he feels like that he can be a part of. Um, and his response to me... Um, wasn't super unusual. Maybe you've, you've heard someone uh, express this before. Maybe you've, you've felt this before. And, and, and he, he said, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. I'm just going to wait until I'm older. I'm just going to wait until I'm older. And this guy was already maybe in his like, early to mid-50s. He said, I'm just, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. I'm going to wait until I'm older. This man was living in a world anxious that the good wine had run out. Because implicit in his logic that he was going to wait until he was older is that implicit in his logic is that whatever it is that Christianity offers, whatever it is that Jesus offers, the good stuff isn't there. Because no one waits until they're older for the good stuff. Implicit in his logic is that the good wine had already run out or that it was about to run out or that all the best that he could do, only, the only thing that he could do is take whatever good that he had in his marriage or his career or his pets. He had uh, ten fish tanks and two dogs. But whatever good was there, the logic was whatever good is there, that the best that he could do is take it and squeeze whatever good was left there and then at the very end he might try again the Christianity stuff. He was living in a world anxious that the good wine had run out. Do you feel like that you're living in that anxiety that that the good wine has run out, that you feel yourself being shaped into the, the misery or the anxiety or the disappointment or the disillusion or the desperation or even the depression that comes from that sneaking feeling that the good wine has run out. I see this on the news. I see this on social media. I see it in how I respond to stress in my life. I'm responding, operating as if it's, it's all spent, that there, is, there isn't much good stuff left. What about you? Where do you see it? See it? Where do you feel it? Christ the King, on this third Sunday of Epiphany, in a world anxious that the good wine has run out, we proclaim the good news that Jesus has come to transform human despair and desperation into a wedding feast with fine wine. We proclaim 
the good news that in a world anxious that the good wine has run out, that Jesus has come to transform human desperation and despair into a wedding feast with fine wine. And he invites us to drink deeply of his joy. Do you want to drink tonight, guys? Do you want to drink deeply of Christ's joy? This is what I'm getting at. This is what I'm getting at. Is it that at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of this Jesus stuff, at, at the meaning of it all, the, the, where all of this is headed, is the good news that God has defeated the powers of sin and death in Christ, and that in doing that, he is ushering in new creation, making possible communion with him at his table. That's at the heart of it all. That in Christ, God has defeated the powers of sin and death and has ushered in the reality of new creation and the possibility of communing with him and one another at his table in his presence. This is at the heart of it all. This is at the base of Christianity. This is what it's all about. And it's for this reason that, that in the words of one theologian, theologian, that from its beginning, Christianity has been the proclamation of joy. But do you feel like that this is what it's about? Is this the message that you, that you get? Maybe you feel yourself being drawn into the cynicism or the despair or the desperation. Or maybe you feel yourself being, being only knowing like an, an anemic gospel. A gospel that isn't as big as that, that doesn't have as its ultimate end the joy of sharing and communion with Jesus at his table in his presence. Do you long to drink deeply of Jesus' joy tonight? Christ the King, I need this joy. I need to reclaim this joy as, as being at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because I recognize that in reclaiming this joy is how I'm, how I'm going to recover my identity. In a world that's anxious, that all the good wine has run out, this is what it means for us to recover our identity as God's people, is, is to, to receive again, to proclaim again, to drink deeply again of Jesus' joy. We see in John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2, this, this miracle, this sign of, of Jesus coming to this wedding feast and transforming water into wine. And what we recognize, what's so significant, there's so much going on here in this, in this passage. I, man, like as I just peeled back the layers of this text and sat in this and prayed through this this week, it just kept going. Like the depth and the richness, I encourage you in your own time to sit and just to contemplate this passage. This John chapter 2, 1 through 11. There's so much going on here, but what's so important about this passage that we see about this passage is that this, this sign, this miracle of Jesus transforming water into wine isn't just a random event, isn't just this, this passing miracle that Jesus does that the only purpose of it is to say, see, Jesus is divine. He can change water into wine. That's a thing that divine people do. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is divine, and it does reveal his, his divine sonship. But it's not just that Jesus is, is uh, just doing this random miracle. John says there in, in verse 11, John says that this sign that Jesus performs at this wedding in Cana is an epiphany. It's a revelation of God's glory. It's an epiphany. It's a revelation of joy. 
What Jesus is doing here in the very first sign, in John, this is the very first sign that he performs as a part of his ministry. In the very first thing that he does, what we see is the end. The very first thing that we see that Jesus does, we see a revelation of where everything is going. We see a picture of the big story of God's salvation, of what God is doing in the whole world. Here, very subtly, behind the scenes, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus reveals joy. And so we see that into a world that is anxious, that the wine has run out, that in this passage, that Jesus, a guest at this wedding, that Jesus becomes the true host. Jesus becomes the true host, the source of joy giving people, even people who don't know, a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb, where people commune with him in his presence and with one another. Here at the very beginning, this is the big thing that's going on in, in Jesus' ministry. And so we see the scene is set up. There, there Jesus and, and his mother Mary and his disciples, and it seems like some of his brothers and sisters are there. The wine has run out. This isn't just a big disappointment for people who like to get drunk. This is, this, is a, this is like a meta thing that's going on. Like if you were at a wedding in the ancient world, if the wine ran out, this, this is like a, this is a, a, a foretaste of disaster. It's, it's a source of shame. And so Mary is tuned into this. Mary's tuned into what's going on. That the wine has run out. And so we see, too, here, one of the things that we keep in mind as we read John chapter 2 is that, especially in John's gospel, Jesus is always saying more than what's going on on the surface. There's so much metaphor going on that, that people are trying to engage Jesus at this level of, like, surface-level stuff, and then Jesus comes in, like, way, like, I guess I was going to say way up here, but I guess deep, way deeper. Like, way, uh, there's more going on to what Jesus is doing. We see this here in John chapter 2. We see it in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about being born again. We see it in John chapter 4 in Jesus' conversation about water in the well. Um, with the woman uh, from Samaria, we see it in John chapter 5 when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders about authority. We see it in John chapter 6 when Jesus is talking to his disciples about bread and manna from heaven. We see it when Jesus bends to wash his disciples' feet. More is going on here. And so Mary comes to Jesus and is telling him that the wine has run out. And notice that Mary, Mary is asking Jesus to do something, which assumes that Mary believes that Jesus could do something. Get this. Get what Mary sees here. Mary assumes that Jesus can create life in a desperate situation where it seemed like all the good stuff had run dry. You see how it's like so thick. This is going to be a 45-minute sermon. It's not, but it could, it could be an hour and 45. There's so much going on here. Jesus, Mary assumes that Jesus can create life. Mary assumes that Jesus can be the source of joy in a world anxious that there's going to be nothing left. And so Jesus answers Mary's question with more than what Mary is asking, like he is wont to do. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. But he's not just dissing Mary. He's not just like, you're asking me the wrong question. He's provoking. He's saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
Because it all has to do with him. It all has to do with him. My time has not yet come. The fulfillment of this hasn't come, but there is something coming. There is a sign that will be revealed. The sign of him on the cross that will speak to the very situation that they find themselves in. And so Jesus is speaking and acting in metaphor, and this whole scene is like a big parable. There's two metaphors here that I want to draw your attention. The first is the metaphor of the wedding feast. They really are at a wedding. It really is a feast, but this is, this is bigger than that. It's the metaphor of the wedding feast. This metaphor, this wedding feast, is all about salvation. It's the language that, that is spread throughout the prophets. It's there in Isaiah. When Isaiah is talking about the good stuff that God's going to bring when he brings his salvation, this wedding feast, this image, this is about the fulfillment, the foreshadowing of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Communion. This is all about communion. All about the, the intimate sharing of life. This is about God's goal for salvation. This is what, what's going on here is it's saying that God's goal, the ultimate, not just the things that get us to the ultimate, but the ultimate picture of God's salvation is a wedding feast where we dwell in his presence and drink deeply of his joy and commune with him. The second metaphor is, is this wine, this fine wine. This fine wine signals a new creation, that what Jesus is doing, what he's come to do is, is to fulfill the old that's passing away and to bring new creation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the old is gone, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Notice here, again, the, the images are just so deep here. Notice here what Jesus uses to transform the water into wine. Notice where he says to, to put the water. He says to put the water in these big jugs that are, that are used for Jewish purification rites. He's repurposing Jewish liturgical material that was used for the cleansing and purification of God's people. He's using it to create wine, the symbol of of the newness in life and new creation and communion that he's bringing. There's so much going on here. And then notice notice in this scene, notice that that this whole community benefits from this, but, but notice the people who actually see what's going on. It's not the bridegroom, it's not the host of the party, it's not the the uppity-ups who actually see what the source of true joy is. It's the servants. The servants are the ones who are able to see the source of true joy. The ones who listen to Jesus' voice and who do what he says. They're the ones who know the source. This was such a risky move for the servants it was hard work filling. The, by the way, uh, he made 100, like 150 gallons of wine. It's a lot of wine. It's a risky move. They're trusting in this guy, who they probably don't know, that when they do all this hard work, when they dip their chalice into the jug and take it to the host who could fire them or whatever, that what they take to that host to give to the bridegroom is not just going to be some funky water, but it's going to be wine. They're the ones who know the source of true joy. And it's it's because of that that these servants become mediators. 
They become priests of blessing for others who don't even know. Crucial to what's going on here is that the glory, the joy that's revealed in Jesus, we see it's not a cheap joy. It's not a triumphalistic joy. Because the joy that we see that Jesus reveals is the joy that comes through the cross. A triumphalistic joy would be a joy that like ignores reality, that ignores the reality of pain and suffering, or that seeks to uh, control or, or manufacture or, or be in charge of reality by coercing over others. It's not a triumphant joy. Because in John, the ultimate sign that reveals God's glory is the sign of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what he's referring to is the hour that will come. His hour on the cross is the one in which, which the joy of God's wedding feast, that it's going to be revealed. So we see that it's the joy that comes through the cross. The joy that Jesus offers comes not by ignoring the pain and the wickedness of the world, but through his identification and his solidarity with that reality. And so this is really important for us because that means that there's, there's no um, distinction between the uh, take-up-your-cross life and the drink-deeply-of-joy life. Those aren't two different lives. The take-up-your-cross life and the drink-deeply-of-joy life. In Jesus, that's one in the same life. Here's some, some, the deep theology behind that. Just bear with me here. The reason that that's true is that the same divine Trinitarian love that purposes into creation the joy of communion is the same divine love that responds to all the sinful forces of the world that keep us from communion. It's the same divine love that responds to all the sinful forces that keep us from communion by becoming a servant unto death. The take-up-your-cross life is the drink of Jesus' joy life. And so what that means for us is that we can die to our ego. We can lay down our life for others. We can choose simplicity over excess. We can radically share our resources with others. We can own our brokenness and our inner poverty. We can do all of this because the one whose glory was revealed on the cross, that one is the source of our joy. Christ the King, the one whose glory is revealed on the cross for our sake and for the life of the world, that one is the source of our joy. And he invites us today to drink of his joy. Drinking deeply of joy begins by seeing Jesus as the true host. Seeing Jesus as the true host because get this, because if Jesus is the host, in whatever situation, if, if Jesus is actually the true host, the true source of joy, then that means that communion and joy is, is what's being offered. If Jesus is our true host, that means the most important thing, the thing that matters most in whatever situation, is that communion and joy is possible. That if we're Jesus' disciples... That what we're on about, what we're after, what is, what is the ultimate goal for us is communion. That's what we're looking for. That's what we need to recover our identity. And so we see, this is what we do. This is what we're doing here. The word in the Eucharist, the word in the table, bring us to the source of joy. In a world that's anxious, that all the good wine has run dry, 
Jesus' word and his table bring us to the source of joy, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so what that means is when we come, when we hear Jesus' words, when we drink deeply of his, of his life, in essence what we're doing is we're saying that we refuse for our identity. When we drink that our identity, we refuse for it to be determined by the cynicism or, or by, by triumphalism, by scarcity or lack, by guilt or shame or fear. That is not the people who we are. We may come in here on Sundays having been, been felt like we're at a war of, of a life that's drawing us into cynicism or triumphalism or despair or desperation or division. But when we come in here and we hear of Jesus' word and we feast with him, him at the table, we're saying that that is not what defines us. That rather we are our people shaped by Jesus' joy. And as we partake, we become a people of Jesus' joy. And then we are able to then go and to live like Jesus is the host. So this begins to define what evangelism and what mission is all about. We, like those servants, having drank, having listened to Jesus, having drank deeply of his joy, go out and what we're able to see in any situation is, it, is here in this workplace, in this school classroom, in this frustrating situation, in this bedroom where my toddler is freaking out. Jesus is the host. And he's offering communion. And because I'm drinking deeply of his joy, I can be a mediator of that joy to others. Living like Jesus is the host for us looks like a radical alternative presence. Living in resistance to the forces of cynicism and despair and triumphalism. This, remembering that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. We were, this is uh, what Martin Luther King was getting at when he was talking about the formation of the beloved community a community that was able to live um, freely without fear, with, with actual justice and righteousness and love that resists the forces of evil and hate and desperation and division. This is, this is what God is forming us into when we drink deeply of his joy together. Christ the King. In a world anxious that all the good wine is gone, we proclaim the good news that Jesus has invited us to his wedding feast to drink of his joy. I invite you to drink today. During the prayers of the people, uh, if you'd like to respond out loud, I invite you to respond.